This episode contains graphic content. Listener discretion is highly advised. Welcome to What the Actual F. My name is Harmony and I'm your host here. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, welcome. It's so great to have you here. And if you are a reoccurring listener, a follower, if you will, thank you so much for all of your support and for coming back every week to just talk about some of the darkest shit that is out there. So thank you. All right, that's enough with all the intros, I think. Let's just go ahead and jump into this case. So today I was thinking since the whole Elisa Lam mystery had been brought back into light due to the Netflix documentary about the Cecil Hotel, that maybe you guys would want to hear about another incident that happened at a hotel where many big names once called home. That would be the Chelsea Hotel, which was built in 1804. The Chelsea has become an iconic New York City landmark. With people like Janis Joplin, Patti Smith, and Madonna, among many others who once called this place their home. But... I'm not here to tell you about any of them. I'm here to tell you about what happened in 1978. When 20-year-old Nancy Spungen was found dead with a single stab wound in the bathroom of her room, her boyfriend, former Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious, was the cop's only suspect. And at 20 years old, Sid was charged with her murder. This case, though, may not have gotten the resolution that people were truly hoping for. With all that, I think it's time we get into the details of everything. What Charles Manson did for the 60s, um, Sid and Nancy did for the 70s. He'd always drew the heat, the bouncers, the cops. She was definitely the Yoko of the scene in a way. Nobody liked her. He was the true anti-culture person. Nancy Spungen was born on February 27th, 1958 in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. Her parents were Franklin and Deborah Spungen, though friends of Franklin called him Frank, so we're going to call him Frank. Something I'd like to share with you that happened to Nancy is something that happened as well when I was born and to my son. Nancy was born with severe cyanosis and nearly died of oxygen deprivation after being choked by her umbilical cord. This same thing happened to me when I was born and my mother had to be rushed to an emergency C-section in the middle of labor. If my mother would have kept pushing, not only would I have died, but so would she. And the same thing happened to me when I gave birth to my son, Saya. Though he did not end up needing to have an emergency C-section, I just ended up needing three doctors in the room and almost died directly after. It is something that happens often in births, and I just wanted to share that. Now, a common thing that does happen with this is brain damage, though Nancy did not seem to show any brain damage and was released from the hospital just eight days after her birth. Now Nancy and her family were middle-class Jewish family and they resided in Lower Moorland Township, a suburb of Philadelphia. Frank, Nancy's father, he was a traveling salesman. And later in Nancy's life, her mother Deborah would own a organic food shop called The Earth Shop. This store was located nearby in Jenkintown. I really hope I said that right. I'm sorry if you live there and I messed it up. Now, a lot of people claim that young Nancy was a pretty difficult baby. She would throw crying fits and severe temper tantrums even into her late childhood. 
I'm not gonna lie, your girl threw some temper tantrums too in the middle of stores. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was that kid. Oh God, I feel so bad for my parents sometimes. And then I think about what they did to me and I was like, mm. oh my, how the turntables. However, Nancy was considered a bit of a problem child. At three months old, she was prescribed a liquid barbiturate by a pediatrician, but her violent behavior continued on. That's like stating, man, I took a few Zannies and I ran a fucking marathon. I've actually never taken more than one because that's been my highest dose ever prescribed. And the one, the one time that I got up to that dose, woo, uh-uh, nope. There's no way I was out, okay? I was down. So the girl had it in her. She was determined. In an interview, Deborah Spungen stated, it is normal for babies to scream, but Nancy did nothing but scream. Now, even with all of her issues with her behavior and her anger, she did exceedingly well in her academia. Now, even though she did amazing in school, Nancy did not have a lot of friends during the time, most likely due to her behavior. Even though Nancy was a very temperamental child, who would even exhibit extremely, extremely violent behavior toward her younger sister, Susan, she was, however, extremely caring toward her younger brother, David. But it seems that threats weren't the only thing that she was capable of. As one time, Nancy attacked her psychiatrist who accused her of acting out for attention. Due to Nancy's behavior, in 1972, her parents sent her away to a school in Connecticut. This school was the DeVoe Manor, and she ended up running away and then attempting to take her own life by slitting her wrist with scissors. At 15 years old, Nancy was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Nancy did go on to graduate from Lakeside High School in April of 1974. Nancy was accepted into the University of Colorado, and she began attending the university at 16 years old. The girl was incredibly smart, but five months into her freshman year, she was arrested for purchasing marijuana from an undercover police officer. She was also later arrested for storing stolen property in her dorm. After these incidents, the University of Colorado decided that it was best to just go ahead and expel Nancy. It actually got so bad that Nancy's father, Frank, had to travel up to Boulder to accept a plea bargain for her which resulted in her being banished completely from the state of Colorado. It's seven o'clock on Wednesday, the 17th of August. Elvis Presley, at one time known to millions as the king of rock and roll, has died suddenly at the age of 42. <laughs> the king of rock and roll died yesterday. He was found face down on a bathroom floor. There have been numerous reports that Presley was a heavy drug user. All that time I'm up, well, um, I was getting my own group together, the Flowers of Romance. And Rotten asked me if I wanted to join the... There's this big hoo-ha on mountains. It's all a big secret, man. Uh, come down to this pub at such and such now. And, and I, thought, I thought they were going to do me over because I didn't turn up to one of Rotten's parties or something. He gets touchy over like New York dolls because they were nasty and mean and they wore makeup and they didn't give a shit. We weren't the nice boys they thought we were. We aren't nice boys. We were fucking nasty little bastards. Who needs a fucking UK? It's a load of fucking shit. Got a lot of whack in my ears today. So we were left doing nothing. I was just sitting there. We, like, we didn't even fucking rehearse. No, we wanted to fucking rehearse or do anything. So like, you know, 
it's a logical conclusion, do you know what I mean? Boredom. And well, once we I'm said, not. we're fucking leaving the group unless you fucking get some gigs, you stupid little cunt. He got something together the next day. Well, he could have done that all the time. Okay, so let me tell you about that gem. That was Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious was Nancy's boyfriend at the time of her death. He's also best known for being the basis of the English punk rock band, The Sex Pistols. Sid Vicious was born Simon John Ritchie, even though it was constantly reported that his name was John Simon Ritchie. It is Simon John Ritchie, but you can see the mix-up. He was born on May 10th, 1957 in Lewisham to John and Anne Ritchie. Anne dropped out of school early on due to not doing so well and decided to join the British Army. This is where she met her husband-to-be, John. At the time, John was a Buckingham Palace guard and a semi-professional trombone player. Shortly after Sid was born, him and his mother moved to Ibiza, where they were expected to be joined by his father, who, it was planned, would support them financially in the meantime. However, after the first few checks failed to arrive, Anne realized that John wasn't going to show. And neither would his trombone, if you know what I mean. Now, I do want to tell you what John Ritchie decided to do instead of go and meet his family in Ibiza. John left the service and his family and turned around to become a furniture salesman. Now, I am not telling you that to judge him in any way. I'm telling you that because it sets the ground for Sid's life. Sid's father walked away from him to become a furniture salesman and his mother. That's got to hurt. I can't imagine that as a child knowing that. Now, I'm just saying it like that because in my heart of hearts, I don't believe that any child should ever grow up without a parent if that means that they abandoned them or that another parent is keeping them away. It is not okay for a child to suffer at all. Sorry, that's just the little trauma hurt girl in me. I just wish we could all get along like we used to in middle school. I wish that I could bake a cake made out of rainbows and smiles and we'd all eat be happy. She doesn't even go here. Do you even go to this school? No. I just have a lot of feelings. Okay, go home. Anne, Sid's mother, would later go on to marry a man by the name of Christopher Beverly in 1965. Sadly, though, just six months later, Christopher would die from cancer. In 1973, while Sid was attending Hackney Technical College, he met John Linden. John describes Sid during this time as being a David Bowie fan and a, quote, clothes hound. I'm telling you about John because he is the one who gave Simon the name Sid Vicious. John Linden had a pet hamster named Sid Barrett. And one time, this hamster bit, who is now known as Sid Vicious, and he turned around, looked at John, and said, Man, Sid is really vicious. And apparently, because of what he said, it became a nickname. By the time Sid was 17, his favorite place to hang around was London. And one of his favorite spots was Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood's little-known clothing store, Sex. This is where Sid would meet Chrissy Hind. Now that name might not ring a bell to you, but a song by a band that she went on to form known as The Pretenders probably will. I'll stand by you. I'll stand by you. Chrissy 
also tried to convince Sid to join her in a fake marriage, like, you know, go through with an actual marriage, but it, it wouldn't be real. She just needed him to agree and to follow through so that she could obtain a work permit. Sid did decline, however. Now, as I stated, uh, John Linden gave Sid his nickname, Sid Vicious, from this hamster bite from Sid Barrett. If you thought that was confusing with all those names, hold on to your butts because it's about to get a little bit more confusing. During this time, Sid was living with John Linden, John Joseph Wardle, aka Jaw Wobble. I'm sorry. I can barely say Jaw Wobble with a straight face. I don't know why. I'm sorry. And John Gray. And remember, Sid's real name is Simon John but everyone called him John Simon. All in all, they were called the Four Johns. According to John Linden, he and Sid would often busk for money with Sid playing the tambourine. He actually said that they were playing Alice Cooper covers and people gave them money to stop. It's gonna be a no for me, dog. Also according to John Linden, one time a man gave them three bob or three shillings and they all just danced and kind of joked and had fun. However, later, a darker side of Sid's personality emerged when he assaulted NME journalist Nick Kent with a motorbike chain. He did this with the help of Jaw Wobbles. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's the name. So now that we all know that I am extremely immature and laugh at anything, I'm gonna tell you about another occasion at a speakeasy. This is a London nightclub that was frequented by a lot of rock stars during this time. At this speakeasy, Sid threatened BBC DJ and Old Grey Whistle test presenter Bob Harris. So there are a few sides to Sid, as you can see. He won't get involved with a fake marriage to help a friend. He will dance for, you know, coins and entertain you. But he is very quick to threaten and, uh, I guess, throw hands, as the kids say. Why did you throw me gloves? To cast these hands! Sid began his musical career in 1976 as a member of the Flowers of Romance. Sid was in this band with co-founding member of The Clash, Keith Levine. And in case you guys don't know who The Clash is, allow me to enlighten you. Now, early on in his career, he was doing pretty great, you know, making some, some headway, getting some connections, but an incident happened, according to members of The Damned. So this band was looking for a lead singer, and Sid Vicious was considered, along with Dave Vanian. I really hope I said that right. With the band looking at both Sid and Dave, it was really important that they had auditions. Sid, however, failed to show up for his. Now, Sid had a response to this. 
He said that Dave and the members of the band purposely withheld information regarding the audition as an act of jealousy to ensure that he would not arrive. So due to this, Sid held a personal grudge for his perceived reality of the situation and this grew a lot of animosity between him, the band, and Dave. This grudge would become violent. During a performance of The Dams on the second day of the 100 Club Punk Special, the very day after Sid just made his debut of drumming, Sid, who is extremely intoxicated and pumped full of amphetamines, hurls his glass at the stage with the full intention of hitting Dave. This to him was an act of, you know, retribution, his, his own sort of revenge. But because he was so heavily intoxicated and pumped full of drugs, the glass missed, shattered, and hit a pillar. It doesn't end there. The pieces of the glass ended up blinding a girl in one eye. Sid was arrested the very next day and imprisoned at Ashford Remand Center. You remember the store where he used to go, where he met Chrissy at? Well, one of the owners, Vivian Westwood and Viv Albertine, visited Sid during his imprisonment. Albertine brought him the gift of Helter Skelter. Okay, so I'm going to tell you how Sid got to end up being in the Sex Pistols. Because when I tell you, it sounds like every groupie's dream. Sid was asked to join because he attended every single gig of the band. Their manager, Malcolm McLaren, went on to say that if Johnny Rotten is the voice of punk, then Vicious is the attitude. He also went on to say that if he had met Sid before he met Johnny, then the would-be singer wouldn't be, and Sid would actually become the frontman. Alan Jones once described Vicious as the iconic punk look. Quote, Sid, on image alone, is what all punk rests on. Sid Vicious played his very first gig with the Pistols on April 3rd, 1974, at the Screen on the Green in London. His debut was filmed by Don Letts and appears in Punk Rock Movie. Now that was a snippet from that very first time that Sid Vicious did play with the Sex Pistols. Now Sid was in the band, but he could not play well at all. He had no bass guitar experience whatsoever. As I stated, the only reason they really chose him was because he was at every single gig and he basically embodied the punk lifestyle. Now due to Sid not being able to play the bass guitar, they had Steve Jones, the guitarist of the band, step in and play the band's needed bass lines for their debut album, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. Sid did appear on one of the songs, Bodies, which he was allowed to do so because it was dubbed over by Jones. Another thing I need to tell you now is that Sid had hepatitis, which would cause him to be absent from a lot of the album's sessions because he was in the hospital dealing with his hepatitis. The claim and the belief is that he did catch hepatitis due to his intravenous drug use. He was a very heavy drug addict. Please wake up! Talk! Because what you're saying is totally unintelligible and you can't understand you. And we called him, so that means it's a waste of his time. So let's give him a good interview, right? Well, do you know what I mean? Do I know what you mean? About why he called it a day? 
Yeah, I know what you mean. Now let's look back at Nancy for a moment so I can fill you in on basically exactly how they met. Nancy left her home at 17 and moved to New York City, where she became a dancer and a sex worker. Nancy became a groupie and started to follow bands such as Aerosmith, Bad Company, The New York Dolls, and The Ramones. In 1977, Nancy moved all the way to London in hopes that she could woo Jerry Noland of the Dolls and the Heartbreakers. Now Nancy may have had hearts in her eyes for Jerry on her way to London, but when she got there, she instead met the Sex Pistols. It was because of this meeting that she had with the Pistols that Nancy decided to pursue Sid Vicious, and shortly after, they moved in together. Everybody was for Sid. I mean, Sid was like... I don't know if he saw any of the gigs, but Sid was like really shining out. And John was being like nothing. You know, he just wasn't giving it anymore. He just wasn't, and he wasn't shaping up. He was looking awful. The way he was dressing, the way he looked, looked horrible. He, he wouldn't listen to anybody. And like... You know, I mean, Sid tried to talk to him time and time and time again. Now, it is stated that Nancy is the one who sort of introduced Sid to heroin, but Sid was not a stranger to drugs at that time. He had already been abusing drugs for quite some time that were supplied to him by his mother. Yeah, good old Anne. She's, she was giving him drugs. On December 25th, 1977, the band played a matinee for the children of Huddersfield. This was all during a fireman's strike. Later, John Linden claimed in a documentary that Sid, he needed a serious talking to beforehand because he wanted to be, quote, hardcore, tough rocker bloke, and that he had to be told that, hey, you know, swearing and being tough wasn't the right way to get the message across to these children. Like, you know, hey, we get it, punk rock, it never dies, but also these are kids, their minds are very, very, like, spongy. We, we probably shouldn't be all like, yeah, fuck the system. Maybe more like, hey, you know, sweep if you're ass, don't question the man right now. Not yet, like, you're four, calm down. But no, Sid, this is what he was. Like, he literally lived the punk life. There was no pausing, stopping, it's not happening. Turn up this microphone a bit so I can see. Now what you just heard was a snippet of this performance at Huddersfield. During this recording, Johnny Thunder's song, Born to Lose, which appears on Sid Sings, is featuring Sid's vocals, which were recorded during this performance when Johnny Rotten stepped off the stage to pose as Father Christmas. This performance was the very last performance of the Sex Pistols in England until their reunion in 1996. Now, this reunion tour only consisted of the original quartet together again. Then, in 1978, the group embarked on a U.S. tour which would only end up lasting two weeks. This ended up happening because of so many shows canceling and complete deterioration from within the group. The issues that were tearing the group apart were between Malcolm McLaren, Johnny Rotten, and Sid Vicious. Johnny was accusing Malcolm of trying to, quote, wreck the very thing that made the Sex Pistols great. 
And then you add the issue of Sid's worsening heroin habit and negative interactions with members of the audience. It was getting pretty bad. As we know from Sid's past, he's fun, outgoing, but he's also not always that way. He has his, he's got a dark side, a pretty dark side actually, pretty dark, and we're going to keep learning about just how dark that side is. In San Antonio during the tour, Sid struck an audience member on the head with his bass. So be it, yes, the audience member had completely antagonized Sid, who responded by hitting him. As we know at this point though, Sid has been blatant with the fact that he is who he is, so fuck everybody else, which is not okay. Neither of these two were right in what they did, but we're just kind of getting a ground and a feel for Sid's state of mind and his heavy drug use at this point. On another occasion, before the Pistols could even take the stage at the Longhorn Ballroom in Dallas, Sid, now in a heroin withdrawal state, carved the words, give me a fix, into his bare chest with a razor. After the show at Winterland in San Francisco, the group completely fell apart. And this meant that Sid Vicious was free to do as he pleased. Sid, he's not interviewing me. Please try and wake up. Could you want me to make a cup of coffee? Yes, yes I'll make a cup of coffee. But will you try and fucking wake up, no, please? Okay. Because we, we gave him an interview. Oh, Right. With Nancy acting as his manager, Sid embarked on a solo career. During his career solo, he played with musicians like Mark Jones from The Clash, which he had history with. He also played with Glenn Matlock, the bassist that he replaced in The Pistols. He played with Rat Scabies of The Damned and The New York Dolls' Arthur Kane, Jerry Nolan, you guys remember him, Nancy's original crush, and Johnny Thunders, who I'm going to be honest, I, I don't know. I've never heard of. Sid would perform the majority of his shows at Max's in Kansas City, and this would draw a lot of crowds, huge crowds in fact. Oftentimes though, these performances would be described as hellish, especially because Sid would insult several members of the audiences during his performances. <laughs> shows at Max's would draw mass crowds and people would love to stand there and be insulted and sing along to the punk rock that they came to enjoy, these gigs of his there would soon show to be his last and final performances of his solo career, as well as the last performances ever before he died that following February. Come. Yeah, okay, I'll wait. 
Nancy and Sid were together for 19 months. During this tumultuous relationship, Nancy and Sid, who were both abusing multiple drugs, the tabloids would begin to dub Nancy as, quote, nauseating Nancy. Due to her frequent public displays of verbal abuse and violence, after the Sex Pistols broke up in January of 1978, Nancy and Sid moved to Hotel Chelsea in New York City. This is where they stayed in room 100 and registered as Mr. and Mrs. John Simon Ritchie. As you can see, everyone in his life called him John Simon, including Nancy, though he was born Simon John. Romanticized. It was dirty and grubby. I remember waking up there. I went home with some girl who lived there, um, and just thinking this place is like a mental hospital. You know, where where there's no there's no security. <laughs> you know, just, everyone was just so crazy. I mean, it was kind of cool in a way. There was a certain floor I don't remember that you didn't want to go past. Um, without worrying about getting robbed or mugged, then you wouldn't want to spend the night if they had a room available on those floors. Now, Sid and Nancy have moved to New York City and they have taken residence in the Chelsea Hotel. Again, their relationship is very rocky. They fight all the time. Nancy is seen in public very mean, very cruel, and they are both very abusive to one another. The two were known to constantly be high on several drugs, their favorite, though, was heroin, which, as we know, Nancy had introduced Sid to. But again, Sid was not new to drugs when Nancy strolled into his life, as his mother, Anne, had been supplying him for years before. Even though neighbors of Sid and Nancy would constantly complain to management about what they heard coming from the couple's room, nothing would ever be done and management would sweep everything under the rug. You see, at the time, punk rock had just kind of exploded into New York City. And this was Sid Vicious. I'm sorry, hold on. <clears throat> and this was Sid fucking Vicious. Isn't that like, ooh, Sid Vicious? I don't know. I was trying to be punk rock. <laughs> okay, moving forward. He was the poster boy of, you know, punk rock. He, he was the embodiment. So because of his celebrity status and everything, no one did anything. It just kind of became known that that was Sid and that was Nancy and that was them. I'm just not going to, okay? You have to, you promise! Yeah, well, I'll change my mind. You can't! You can't change your mind! We said we go out together! You can't change your mind! Of course mind. I can, I just did, I did! No! Please, oh glory! You promise! Okay. You promise! You know, I'm getting out of this potsy place. I go back to him. No, why? Because I want to get straight, you know? Why? I'm just sick and tired of all these fucking Fuck people that just you. kiss us. You know, I want to okay. get back to my friends, okay. the people who care. Go on. 
October 12th, 1978, the setting, the Hotel Chelsea in Manhattan, New York. Sid claims that he woke up from a drugged stupor to find Nancy dead on their bathroom floor. Nancy had suffered a single stab wound to her abdomen and appeared to have bled to death. The knife that had been used to stab her was a Jaguar K-11 hunting knife, according to the police report, and not the 007 knife that's commonly cited to have been the weapon. Sid was arrested and charged with her murder. So Sid says that him and Nancy did fight that night. But what happened next is that's where it gets real. Okay, he says, I stabbed her, but I never meant to kill her. That's a direct quote from Sid himself. But then he goes on to say that he didn't remember exactly what happened at all. And then another time he says that, at one point during their argument, Nancy had simply just fallen onto the knife. I just wanted you guys to know that his story didn't really ever stay the same except for the fact that they had fought. That was the consistent. Sid, damn you! Fuck! On October 22nd, 10 days after Nancy's death, Sid attempted to take his life by slitting his wrist with smashed light bulbs. He was then hospitalized at Bellevue Hospital, where he also tried to kill himself by jumping from a window. It's claimed that as he was jumping, he yelled that he wanted to be with his Nancy. Hospital staff were able to pull Sid back in in time. Yeah. And what do you think made it happen? It was meant to happen. Nancy always said she'd die before she was 21. <coughs> what would you like to happen now over the next, say, year or two? I'd like to have fun. What sort of fun? Any kind of fun, just fun. That's my object in life. Are you having fun at the moment? Kidding. Oh, I'm not having fun at all. Where would you like to be? Under the ground. Are you serious? Oh. That would go on to be Sid's final interview. On the evening of February 1st, 1979, a small group of friends who included Jerry Only from the Misfits.
and future D-Generation founding member Howie Pyro. The group of friends decided to gather at 63 Bank Street in New York City. This was the apartment of Sid's new girlfriend, Michelle Robison. They were planning on celebrating the fact that he had made bail. Now, Sid had just been on Rikers Island and had started a detoxification methadone program. Now, Sid may have been trying to detoxify himself, but a friend of his, an English photographer, Peter Kodik, brought him heroin to this dinner. Sometime in the night, Sid died from an overdose and was discovered by his mother, Anne Beverly, early the next morning. Sid Vicious will not have to stand trial for the murder of a girlfriend at the Chelsea Hotel. Sid is no longer vicious, he's dead. His nude body found in a Greenwich Village apartment, spoon and syringe nearby. The heroin overdose may have been accidental. Sid Vicious, a British punk rocker, became famous by being well-known. Certainly not for his music. Perhaps for his public obscenities, antisocial statements, and vulgarities. Bob Lape has more. In the book, Please Kill Me, The Uncensored Oral History of Punk by Legs McNeil and Gillian McCain, Sid's close friend and photographer Eileen Polk said that no New York funeral home was willing to hold a funeral or burial services for Sid due to his reputation. His remains were eventually cremated at Garden State Crematory in New Jersey. According to Eileen, Sid had wanted to be buried with Nancy. However, Nancy was Jewish and she was buried in a Jewish cemetery in Pennsylvania, making this difficult for interfaith burials. Anne Beverly, Sid's mother, later traveled to Nancy's family home in Philadelphia and flat out asked Nancy's mother, Deborah, if she would scatter Sid's ashes over Nancy's grave. Nancy's mother denied this request. Eileen went on to say, though, that despite the refusal from Deborah, Jerry Olney would drive Anne Beverly and her sister and two of Sid's friends to the cemetery where Nancy was buried, where Beverly then scattered Sid's ashes over Nancy's grave. Just to go over that, uh, Malcolm's attitude once more. Yeah, he just, he didn't like me because I was a junkie. He tried to keep me and Sid apart for months and months and months. Like, we had to keep the clandestine secret everything and um, finally he just gave up because he couldn't do it he just couldn't do it so he just kept saying look i want to hang around with who i want to hang around with and i'll have to stay in my place who i want to stay in my place and you're not going to tell me who not to so just fuck off sid passed away four months after nancy's death and before the trial could even take place nancy's case has been closed with sid as the murderer Nancy was buried in King David Memorial Park in Ben Salem Township of Pennsylvania. And as we found out, Sid's ashes were scattered right on top of her grave. Well, just one more in hundreds of overdose deaths in New York City every year. This one was the ultimate for a punk rocker whose life was a discordant jangle that gave savage substance to his stage name, Sid Vicious. John Simon Ritchie, dead of a heroin overdose at a girlfriend's home here on Bank Street. Detective Hausman, he arrived here at 6 p.m. last night. The party followed. Right. The heroin was injected about midnight. Midnight. He had an overdose reaction at that right. point. Right. And then uh, he came out of it, and then he went back. Then a little while later, he went back to bed, and then he died in his sleep. 
The ex-sex pistol was described as happy about prospects for a bright future when he came here to 63 Bank last night and girlfriend Michelle Robinson and his mother and partied a bit after having been released from Rikers Island. Now, shortly after Sid Vicious's death, his mother and Beverly claimed that Sid and Nancy made a suicide pact and that Sid's death was not accidental. In fact, Anne goes on to claim that after Sid was cremated, she found a handwritten note in the pocket of Sid's leather jacket, and it read, We had a death pact, and I have to keep my end of the bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. A.K.A. Sid Vicious had a 1 p.m. appointment with Homicide to talk about the murder charges against him in the killing of his girlfriend, Nancy Spongen. One hour earlier, he was found dead in bed. Even though Sid has gone down for Nancy's murder before his death, there are several theories that Nancy was murdered by somebody other than Sid, such as one of the two drug dealers who visited the apartment that night. It's stated that a possible robbery was involved as certain items were claimed to be missing from the room. In his book, Pretty Vacant, A History of Punk, Phil Strongman accuses actor and stand-up comic Rockets Red Glare of killing Nancy. It's claimed that Rockets had delivered drugs to the couple's room at the Chelsea Hotel at the night of Nancy's death. Throughout his life, Rockets, who died in 2001, steadfastly denied any involvement in Nancy's murder at least to the press, because it was stated that Rockets would often confess to Nancy's murder within the circle of his friends. Friends like a woman by the name of Zoe Hansen, who took Rockets at his word, but others like Howie Pyro, who have cast doubt on Rockets' alleged claims, just insisting that he's enjoying telling these exaggerating stories for the attention. Rockets did, however, tell the press that he believed he saw the drug dealer that killed Nancy. He states that the morning of Nancy's death, he was in the lobby of the Chelsea Hotel, and that's where he saw him. He says that that drug dealer in question is the one who committed the crime, not Sid. And those are basically the only other two theories. It was a drug dealer, Rockets, or Sid Vicious. However, only one of these people admitted to stabbing Nancy, and that is Sid Vicious. Although his story didn't stay straight the whole time, he did admit to it happening. It was almost that chiaroscuro look all black and white i mean they stood out as if lights were shining around them and they were so outrageous looking and so pale and so ill looking to me and yet they didn't know that on the train platform in a suburban commuter station that the whole every single person was looking at them and they had this little house in maida vale a townhouse in england in london and they had a little life together i, I think that she was happy if one can really define what happy is but I think, yes, he did give her a reason. But then towards the end, within the last few days, I, I think she began to suddenly see things clearly and realize how far she had gone and where she was. And that there was just really, she was in a box. There wasn't any way out. Now, that is the case that I have for you guys today, all about Sid and Nancy. If you want to know more about them, there's a movie called Sid and Nancy, and uh, I mean, you should check it out. It's pretty crazy. Gary Oldman and Chloe Webb really do incredible at embodying Sid and Nancy. There is also a documentary called Who Killed Nancy that you can check out as well. Now that we are drawing to the end of the episode, I just would like to say thank you. Thank you so much for coming back here every week and listening to me tell you some of the darkest shit that has happened in the world. 
I'd also like to thank all of you who have emailed the podcast and sent in mysteries, disappearances, hauntings, conspiracies. I'm filling up a book because of your emails and I can't thank you enough. If you would like to send in an email to the podcast, maybe you have a case or something that you'd like me to look into, or just tell me that, hey, your podcast sucks, Harmony, you can do that at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. But sadly, it is time for me to go ahead and say goodbye. Don't worry, I'll be here next week to tell you something else that's happened in our fucked up society. Something that will leave you wondering, (laughs) what the actual fuck? But until then, I hope you stay safe and sweet screams. I love you guys. Talk to you next week.